Our text this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 4. Begin to read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, 320. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Eve also, Adam also, and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. By the way, there's one of the proofs, indications of the Trinity in the Old Testament, become as one of us. He's not simply talking to angels, but within his own triune being, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Because, of course, if they had eaten the fruit day by day, they would not have aged. That tree of life prevented the aging process. And they were under the sentence of death, and now they were going to age and die. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. The Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. The Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, that is, like a panther ready to pounce, to to devour the one who is walking in sin. Unto thee shall be his desire. He'll have his focus on you, and thou shalt rule over him, really rule over thee. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth. From thy face shall I be hid. I shall be as a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, which come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. The Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And now we go to verse 25. Verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, 
and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord, that is, began to, began to have formal worship, evidently, week by week. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the, man, in the day that God created man in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam, that is man. In the day when they were created, and Adam lived in hundred and thirty years, and begat a son in his own likeness, after his image, and called his name Seth. In the days of Adam, after he had begotten Seth, were eight hundred years, and begat sons and daughters. All the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years, and he died. And Seth, Seth lived in hundred and five years, and begat Enos. And Seth lived after he begat Enos eight hundred and seven years, and begat sons and daughters. All the days of Seth were nine hundred and twelve years, and he died. Thus far the reading of the Holy Scriptures. Our text is that twenty-fifth verse of chapter 4 and Adam knew his wife again and she bare a son and called his name Seth for God said she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel whom Cain slew what we have here is a little jewel of a text. It is as full of gospel truth as an egg is of food. It is suffuse with love. The love of a man for his wife but especially the love of God for his people. And bringing to grieving parents another seed. A case can be made that when it comes to the Old Testament, And the revelation of God through a gospel word, as a gospel God, as a God of goodwill, as a saving God of promise and faithfulness, this little text tucked away here in Genesis 4 is of the third greatest gospel significance in the Old Testament as the revelation of Jehovah God as the saving God of unworthy and damn-worthy sinners. I said the third of significance. Beyond all dispute, the first passage of gospel significance in the Old Testament is Genesis 3.15. God so loved, that is, 
what you know as the mother promise. When hard on the heels of the rebellion of Adam and Eve against him, when two human beings, you know, laid a piece of fruit and the friendship of God and had to think about it, which is more significant, to satisfy my appetite right now with forbidden fruit or friendship with God? Let's weigh that, shall we? You know, I think I want the fruit. Forget about the friendship of God. They had spit in the face of God. And God comes to them. And having rebuked them for their foolishness, comes with the mother promise. And before Mother Eve, says to the serpent and the dragon, Satan, I'm going to give to this woman seed. Seed. That's going to crush your head someday and overcome what she brought to pass, undo what she brought upon the human race, and be your bane and your defeat. God so loved in that mother promise and showed himself to be a God willing to save the ungodly and to return good for evil. That great gospel, beloved, in that basic passage of the revelation of who God, Jehovah, would be to his people, his Israel, if you will. Now, I said it, our passage is the third, gave you what I'm convinced is of first gospel significance. What then is of the second gospel significance when it comes to revelation of this Jehovah God? If this were a catechism class, I'd pause now and ask for you to reflect a little bit and then ask for someone to raise their hand and give me what you thought might be the answer. And when I touch catechism, I could wait for quite a time, waiting for someone finally to give the answer, if no one gave the answer, finally to select someone. Well, I won't do that this morning, of course. This is in catechism and I'm stated supply. So I will give you what is the answer. And I think you will agree with me. Behold, I show you a mystery. That's not exactly how it begins, but it begins with the word behold. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And thou shalt call his name, and here it comes, beloved, Emmanuel. The virgin is a wonder. But holding in her arms, the virgin Mary held God in the flesh. God saying in the Old Testament already, because it's impossible for you to undo what you have done. I will take it upon myself to give the gift of my son in your flesh and he will undo what you have brought to pass upon yourself and he will do that in the way of greatest humiliation and degradation I will bring this upon my own son the son of my bosom for your sakes the wonder beloved of the incarnation and the 
incomprehensible love had brought to pass that little one in the womb of the Virgin Mary. I tell you, that's gospel. Good news of the most wonderful sort concerning who Jehovah God is. But now, a case to be made that this passage tucked away here in Genesis chapter 4 is of the third greatest significance because without the birth of this Seth, you don't have the genealogy, you know, that you find in Luke that runs all the way from Adam to the Virgin Mary in what is known as the spiritual line. There's a royal line that runs through Joseph who will adopt Jesus to be his firstborn, but the spiritual line that runs to the Virgin Mary. Seth is that vital link to replace Abel whom Cain slew. That's God's gospel, you see, in the birth of this Seth, that necessary link and what God brought to pass for the sake of Adam and Eve and for that chosen human race. So filled with gospel as we we must see. In a sense, you know, you can say, but God so loved, God so loved that he gave to Eve Seth. And giving to Eve Seth is really giving to us the son of the Virgin Mary's womb, his own son. That's the text, you know. That's what she says. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed. God hath done this and appointed me this other seed. The gift-giving God, the covenant-making, the covenant-keeping God in the birth of this wonder child. A text, as I said, has much to do with love, as we must see. Love of a man for his wife, but especially a revelation of the love of God for his own that reaches to us in this present day. Under, <coughs> with that introduction, these words, Seth, God's gift to Mother Eve, and she represents the church, remember. Mother Eve re- represents the church. The ordinary birth of an extraordinary child who has extraordinary significance. The fruit and proof of love. The fruit of the love of the man It's the proof of the love of God and the harbinger, harbinger of that great seed. And you know, of course, who he is. So Seth, God's gift to Mother Eve. From a merely human perspective, there's nothing extraordinary about the text or the event of the text. A man knew his wife had a sexual relationship with a woman. And lo and behold, she conceives. And nine months later, she brings forth. And they look the child over, and they give the child a name. How many billions of times hasn't that happened in the history of this world? One would think it's happened too far too many times to think this is anything but ordinary and commonplace. 
And yet, beloved, we must understand that the birth of this Seth, however ordinary and commonplace his birth may appear to be, his birth is anything but ordinary. It's of extraordinary significance, and from a spiritual point of view, he is of extraordinary character. Extraordinary, beloved, from three perspectives, I would say. First place, don't overlook the simple fact that this is the birth of a human being. And the birth of a human being, beloved, is the revelation of the splendor of the mind of the Creator. A man has a relationship with a woman, and a seed is planted in the womb, and two little strands of DNA, invisible to the human eye, wrap themselves about each other and perform what I call the dance of life. And within five days or so, something happens in that little, what are we going to call it, little blob of tissue. And some of the cells decide they're going to turn into bones, skeletons, a spinal cord, and then a limb comes out here, and a limb comes out there, and a limb comes out here, and a limb comes out there. And it begins to develop. And what's interesting about those bones is it doesn't just go a straight bone. Something decides there's going to be a joint here and a joint there. Disconnected. Ah, but to connect them, you need ligaments. So some cells decide they're going to become ligaments and muscle. But if you have ligaments and muscle, you need blood. So some decide they better become vessels, you know, veins, arteries. And some just remain blood cells. But if muscles are going to move, they need nerves. So some decide they must become nerves to run down the limbs, to control the limbs, and attach to the spine that attaches to a brain that's being formed in the skull that has holes in just the right place and eyes form that can receive light and feed the brain information. And then you have to wrap the whole thing in skin. Some decide it better become skin and teeth and fingernails. And organs arranged in just the right place, you know, and interreacted. And just the right amount of chemical. Too much, and there's death. And too little, there's death. And it all has to be perfectly arranged and ordered and interrelated. And it's just happenstance. It's just a matter of chance and coincidence that has occurred over the millennium. What rubbish. What nonsense. The splendor, beloved, of the mind of the Creator who willed such things to happen with the wrapping up of lines of DNA through meiosis and division and so on. I have a book in my library I purchased a few years ago called A Brief History of Just About Everything, written by a man who wants you to know full well he's an evolutionist and an atheist. But he speaks in this book, quite a volume, of the development in the human race of scientific understanding and understanding of the natural world, he would call it. And then he has a section 
on biology and the birth of human beings, a few pages, and very insightful and informative even for the common layman. And then he finally comes to the end of this wonder of meiosis and all the rest, and he has a paragraph that I will summarize that really says this. If it were not for the fact that I were a confirmed unbeliever and an atheist, having considered what I just wrote, I would almost be persuaded that it must be and we must be the product of some brilliant mind and creator. Almost persuaded. But I'm resolved to be an unbeliever. So we'll just dismiss it and say, yep, that's just how it happens to be. Stuff and nonsense, beloved. The revelation of the splendor of the mind of the creator. Hold your firstborn in your hands. And you know what we say? What hath God wrought? What hath God wrought? And now to nurture this child and watch the child develop. Seth. Another product of the love of a man for his wife. But this Seth, of course, goes beyond simply being a revelation of the splendor of the mind of the Creator, because this Seth happens to be spiritual seed. I have received a child from the Lord, and in this child dwells the Holy Spirit. That's extraordinary, isn't it? That in a human being, Dwells the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God Himself. That's why when we sung from Psalm number 14, speaks of being well nigh divine. A child who had restored to him the image of God. And consider, beloved, when we help hold our children, they have the spiritual life. And spiritual children with spiritual life from the likes of us, sinners though we be the newness of life, a new creation in the hearts of our children, and given to Adam and Eve, beloved, in the light of what I just said previously, considering their sin, their rebellion against God, spitting in the face of God and saying, if we have a choice between a piece of fruit to satisfy us right now and the friendship of God, forget about the friendship of God. We want the fruit. Ever hear of the human nature? Comes pretty close to home, doesn't it? when we're faced with choices concerning our own carnal appetites. Forget about friendship and approval of God. I want to eat what I want to eat and satisfy my appetite. At what cost? At what expense? And yet, to the likes of such, God gives this child Seth in his image and his likeness and having spiritual life. The wonder, beloved, not only of creation, but the wonder of grace. And whom God is pleased to grace in his goodwill. Extraordinary, beloved. Our own children, too. From a spiritual point of view, extraordinary. And then there's this consideration concerning Seth. When you consider 
the critical time at which he was conceived and born. In the context of the violent history of Cain against Abel and Cain murdering his brother Abel. That's of extraordinary significance because in the second and for the second time in the history of the human race, just getting started, it seems as though once again everything is lost with respect to friendship with God, and that is having to do with the everlasting inheritance and everlasting life. The first seeming crises, you will, if you will, and, and, and dismissal of that possibility was when Adam and Eve first sinned, of course, when they decided we want the fruit rather than the friendship of, of God. Who needs God? The base ingratitude. We need more. He hasn't given us enough. We should have everything. God, what do we read? Though he clothed them with skin, put the cherubim by the tree of life and drove them from the garden as if they had forfeited all, had lost all, and death upon creation. They under the sentence of death and dying as well. But then God came, of course, with the mother promise and spoke about the spiritual seed and sons and daughters remade in the likeness of God and hope revived and then you have the birth of Cain and Abel and there are others as well daughters evidently but Cain and Abel and now Cain slays Abel and it seems as once again the dragon is going to have the victory the serpent and the dragon because the one who is spiritual lies dead he has been destroyed by Cain and where will the seed of the woman come from now that Abel the spiritual one is dead has the dragon not had the victory from every human point of view it might seem that way what you have beloved in the slaying of Abel by Cain of course is a preview and representation of the whole of Old Testament history in which the serpent and his seed make every endeavor to prevent the coming of the seed of the woman, that dragon slayer. And I word it that way, the coming of the seed of the woman as the dragon slayer based on the book of the Revelation, chapter 12. In chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, you have what is an overview of Old Testament history in the opening verses. There's a peer, there appears this great wonder in heaven. A woman is clothed with the sun. She represents the, the church, of course. 12 stars, you know, 12 tribes and so on. She being with child, cries, travailing in birth and pains to be delivered. The church in birth pangs to bring forth the seed of the woman. Now, there appears another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Seven heads and ten horns and so on. With his tail he drives it draws a third part of the stars of heaven. That is, the angels become joined a third part and they become demons with him, of course. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Satan knows, according to the word of God, there's coming from the church, from the spiritual line, one who was going to have the rod of iron 
She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up into God into his throne. That's the Christ child, of course. But he's to come with this rod of iron to crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent and the dragon wants to prevent that. And comes how many times perilously close to accomplishing that in Old Testament history? Cain slaying Abel, but think of Egypt and the decree of Pharaoh. And all the little baby boys are going to be thrown to the Nile and drowned until only women are left. And then we will simply absorb the women into, into Egypt and Israel will disappear. And there will be no seed of the woman as the dragon has seized in his design. God, of course, prevents that by the exodus and destroying Pharaoh and his hosts in the Red Sea. But then go down the pages of history and there's a woman whose name is Athaliah, who is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, whom Jehoshaphat, though a child of God in foolishness, had married to his own son. And then Athaliah's husband replacing Joshua dies and then her son is on the throne and Jehu is the one who slays not only the son of Ahab if you recall with a, with an arrow and a javelin but even uh, the, the, the grandson of Athaliah who is queen in Jerusalem now and what does she proceed to do? To seek to destroy all of her grandsons with grandmothers like that you don't need grandmothers do you? but to slay every last one of them so she could be queen alone. But the wife of Jehoiada the priest is there and steals away little Joash and the line, the royal line is preserved. The line, the jaws of the dragon snapping shut and almost accomplishing the purpose but failing by the handiwork of God. But that's not the last of it, is it? You have the Babylonian captivity and God brings it back. And now you go to the gospel accounts and there's a certain Edomite sitting on the throne when the wise men come where is the to be the birth of the king of the Jews we saw his star in the east oh come back and tell me that I may worship him too and Warren in a dream they escape and Herod the Edomite sends his soldiers down to Bethlehem to kill all the little baby boys two years and younger and the jaws of the dragon snap shut But Joseph had been warned in a dream. And Mary and Joseph and the little one escape into Egypt until that Herod with his monstrous appetite governed by the dragon dies and they can return. God sparing his own, but the monster of the dragon trying, as we read in Revelation, to prevent the coming and devour that man-child as soon as he is born. So here, beloved, in the passage that we have as a precursor of the whole of Old Testament history reaching all the way to the birth of Jesus who is the Christ and the promised seed of the woman. That God in his great wisdom works in such a way that he takes the seed of Adam and plants that seed in the womb of Eve and she conceives and brings forth this Seth. And this Seth if you know anything about the genealogies, is an integral part, that necessary link that goes from Adam that reach all the way in the end to Mary and the birth of her firstborn. You can read of that genealogy in the Gospel as recorded by Luke, chapter 3, the second half, and it works backward from Mary under the name of Joseph, seemingly Joseph, because the man's name is used, but it's really Mary, the spiritual line, working all the way back through unto David 
and to Judah, and through Noah, to Seth, to Adam himself, whom the passage says is, this, is a son of God. Because of Seth, beloved, you can have the birth then in the end of this man-child, this seed woman who is the dragon slayer. And this Seth then, apparently the birth just of an ordinary down-to-earth child is of extraordinary significance in the whole scheme of salvation, how God in his wisdom works it out. But he is not only a forerunner of Christ Jesus, beloved. Don't forget, this Seth represents our own children as well as God gives us spiritual seed. Seemingly so ordinary. That's how the world looks at them. Just the birth of another child, ordinary child. How many, how many children don't these prosperous people have? Another child. Big deal. Commonplace. But there's one beloved who looks at it far different than that. The dragon. He knows the importance of the birth of children who are the children of the living God and have in them the seed of the woman themselves, Christ Jesus and his life. Because these are the ones who represent the church and these are the ones that God uses to support and send forth the gospel. And that gospel, the Lord goes from victory over victory as Christ by the gospel, using the church and the spiritual seed to bring the gospel to gather his own and to defeat the kingdom of Satan heart by heart in the lives of those who are the children of the living God and in their own way are the seed of the woman to build the church. Our children, beloved, of extraordinary significance in the eyes of the dragon, don't think he doesn't want them exterminated and the fewer the better. Who needs these brats as they are my bane and they represent the one who has the rod of iron as he uses weakest means to continue, beloved, to gather his kingdom and go from victory to victory until he's pleased to return again. That in the first place of extraordinary significance as he's given by God to Eve for the future of history and the whole of the church. But also the fruit and proof of love, which is, of course, at the heart of the gospel, this matter of love. God so loved that he gave. He gave his son, but he also gave to Eve this self-reaching to his son. And the wonder of that love is underscored, highlighted against the background. The background, the context of Cain, Eve's firstborn, murdering Abel, his brother. And death. Death in this family. And Eve left with the corpse of her son. That's right in the text. It's not only the context that we read, but notice the text itself. For God said she hath appointed me another seat instead of Abel whom Cain slew. Notice that. Instead of Abel whom Cain slew. She's left with the corpse of a son. She holds the corpse of a son in her arms. You talk about a grief, beloved. A grief of almost a bottomless sort. 
than you talk about the death of a child, of a mother's child, at whatever age. It's almost of a bottomless sort. One holds in his her arms a child. I've, as a pastor, experienced that more than once because a mother never forgets her child, even one that has been taken from her years and years and decades ago. As a pastor, I don't know how many times I've walked into a room of a widow aging. Her life has shrunk to just maybe a room with a a bed and a table and an easy chair. And the pictures of families, her children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren on the shelf. And I've said, oh, you've had, you had five children. Oh, no, Reverend. I had six children. I had a little Andrew. And two weeks after birth, he had a certain birth defect. And the Lord took him to glory. Or stillborn. And we gave him a name and buried him. Or at the age of two. I'm talking to a woman who might be 90 years old, and this is 70 years ago. At the age of two, there was tuberculosis and polio back then and was taken to glory. Or 12 in a terrible heart-rending accident, or 22, or whatever age. I had six. And just last month would have been his 59th or 71st birthday. And three months from now, and they'll name the date, is when he was taken to glory, or she, and died. They haven't forgotten, be it 70 years later, the days and the date and the name, the mothers of Israel. Fathers grieve too, but to mothers, their children are like life itself. Mother Eve, the corpse of her son in her arm, and they have to bury him. Now add to that this. And the reason my eldest slew the second is because I brought sin into the world. I brought death into the world by my foolish choice. And now one of my sons has been murdered by another of my sons and there's evil in the world, and it's my fault, and I am to blame, and God is speaking to me and bringing my sins to remembrance. This is the consequences, and with this I must live. Has God forgotten to be kind? I turn my back on him, and now he turns his back on me. Beloved, I'm glad I was not her pastor. I don't know what words I would have brought her. You say, well, back then bring her the mother promise, the seed, and she would have said, oh yeah, words, words, words. You see what I'm holding, my son. The promise hangs in tatters, and it evidently is shredded beyond 
repair because all I have here is death. And the other has proved himself to be reprobate and carnal. What do I have left? Now, there well may have been, and there undoubtedly was, daughters, but you don't read of a third son at this point. There were daughters and marriages and even grandchildren. But only two sons to this point from Adam and Eve. And the spiritual one has been, been, been removed and murdered. And it's in that context, with this guilt hanging over her heads and this bottomless grief, that God quickens her womb. And she holds in her arms this Seth. And she says, God hath appointed this to me. This is the word of God to me in the end. And it's not death in the end. And it's not condemnation. And it's not implacable wrath. It's life. And it's salvation. And it's the smile of the face of Jehovah God who has restored to me a little one, and with it, the word of his favor and his approval goes on for me and mine. If you don't hear, beloved, the outbreaking of the hallelujah chorus, you're tone deaf. I spoke about three great passages of gospel significance, and I said maybe this is the third a case could be made that another is the third and not our passage, and that passage would be, of course, Isaiah chapter 40, which begins with the word, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. You've heard the oratorio. Heidelberg Catechism number one as well. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Spoken, remember, spoken to those who were facing the Babylonian captivity. And you know how little... You know how many little ones were going to be slain by the Babylonians in their, brut- in their brutal slaughter? How many mothers would be childless because of the Babylonian captivity? Anticipating that, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. And this, I am convinced, is the heart of that whole chapter says, the Lord will come with a strong hand. His arm shall rule with him. The rod of iron beloved. And then verse 11. Again, behold, I show you a mystery. And here's the words. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. And what follows? He shall gather the lambs with his bosom, his arms, and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. The focus is on the mothers of Israel, isn't it? As you can see, the ewes of the flock looking to the shepherd as he carries their lamb in his arm with safety and security. And even with regard to those who are with young, that little one developing in the womb also are his, even if stillborn, still his. A word to the mothers of Israel with all the demands placed upon their lives and sorrows that they experience as well. The heart of the gospel to his own, the great shepherd, who is also the one who holds the rod of iron, the staff, the rod, you see, and the staff, with the rod, never forgetting the staff as well, that great shepherd of the sheep. And I must not tarry here so long, but I must say that this passage also always reminds me of the New Testament of a certain Syrophoenician woman. 
who came across the border to speak to Jesus, her little daughter dying, and she pleads with Jesus as a Gentile mother, and the Jews, many of them scorned her, and Jesus tests her, and she says, give me just the crumbs from your table, Lord, and he commends her. Remember her words? Lord, she's talking about her child dying. Lord, have mercy on me. She's talking about the child. Lord, have mercy on me. So closely identified. And the Lord says, I have mercy on you. I heal your child because the one whom you so love I so love as well. And with me, that little one is safe and secure, come what may. The word of the living God, beloved, that's why he sent his son to represent him as father with this good word and this good gospel. But it's not only the revelation of the wonder of the love of Jehovah God, It's the love of a man for his wife, of Adam for Eve as two believers, two sinner saints living together. Think there's an association? Two sinner saints living together? Ever hear of such a thing? And he stands with Eve at the lip of the grave. And she is weeping with her guilt. I brought this to pass. My sin, I am to blame. And what does he do? He turns to her and says, you're right, woman. I wish I had never known you. You were the one who made the choice, and you seduced me, and you tempted me, and I fell because of you. If you hadn't been around, this would never have happened. Is that what he said? He turns to her, beloved, and he knows her. And this is not simply the knowledge of a sexual relationship. This is the knowledge of love and an embrace. And he says to his wife, you made a choice. But I made a choice with you. And I sinned also. And I am as much to blame as you. We have no hope except for the mercy of God I forgive you frankly and fully, and I ask you to forgive me as well. And he loved her, and she brought forth. Beloved, when love is wedded to faith, it brings forth life. Love wedded to faith brings forth life. Even without children, it brings forth a life, you will, of the embrace and the life together but to live with one another and to forgive one another. How else can the marriage be blessed and be fruitful? Sinner saints, forgive me and I forgive you. And the readiness to forgive those who seek that forgiveness in the name of the seed of woman. Reflecting, you see, the love of God for us who returns good for evil. And we must do that mutually as we live together, and you have then the bond of Christian marriage. You understand why the Satan goes after Christian marriage and to destroy this love and to make battle 
because there will be casualties, won't they? Not only the marriage, but of those of the marriage in the, in the home. So God give us this, this kind of a love, a willingness to forgive and to have joint blame and realize two sinners living together need to be of a forgiving sort that we might be blessed. And so the love it was with Adam and Eve and the wonder of marriage and from them comes the dragon slayer and the seated woman who will be his opposition to the end of time. Our seed, if you will, as well. And now a harbinger of the great seed. You understand the word harbinger. Harbinger has to do with that which foretells, foreshadows something else of a fuller harvest. Like in the springtime of the year and a crocus poked its head above the soil. And you know as the crocus poked its head and then come the daffodils, it is the foreshadowing finally of spring coming and the ground becoming warmer and the seed germinating and down the road, Lord willing, a fullness of harvest, a harbinger of the fuller plant life, if you will, and the blooms and the harvest to come. So this Seth, a harbinger of what and who was to come. Because in the end, and we're speaking now, of course, a harbinger of the seed of the woman, Christ Jesus himself. His very name means replacement. That's why I call him Seth, because... Uh, God hath appointed me another seed, a re- almost almost substitute, replacement. That's what Seth means, replacement or substitute, pointing to whom Christ Jesus. And, of course, how necessary, beloved, that other one is, a one to even replace Seth, of whom Seth is a foreshadowing. Because however extraordinary Seth was in his significance in his birth, he was still an ordinary human being. And there were powers of evil he could not possibly withstand, as you all well know. We read he died. He himself died. And he couldn't raise himself. He rotted in the grave. He didn't have the power over death. And he couldn't overcome the power of sin and pay the penalty for sin. And he certainly couldn't take into his hand the rod of iron and crush the head of the serpent. That serpent was that dragon was far too powerful. Who, beloved, who would come who can re- wield that rod and have the right to we- wield that rod and set us free? One whose blood speaks better things than that of Abel's. Don't forget. Abel's blood cried, Hebrew says, but it cried from the ground simply for vengeance. We need the blood of one whose blood does not only cry for vengeance, but pays the penalty, serves the sentence makes the redemptive atonement of, of redemptive atonement value, does it not? Whose? The seed, beloved. Christ Jesus. Now go to Bethlehem. She brings forth her firstborn and wraps him in swaddling clothes. And you look at him. How ordinary. Just a little baby, isn't it? Just a little human baby. A little child. What's so special about this child. Catechism might ask the question again and wait for the answer. You know what's special about this child. This is Emmanuel. She is holding in her arms, representing the church, 
God in the flesh, the Son of God himself, the dragon slayer, who will grow and have power and in love lay down his life for his own and have the right to arise from the grave, to tear the bars the right way, and then to go after the dragon himself and confront him and defeat him time and time and time again for our sakes, beloved. Extraordinary. You know what's extraordinary? Although the word is almost inadequate, Jehovah God. The love of Jehovah God for his people. What beloved he wouldn't do for us, what he didn't do for us, and what he still does for us. Extraordinary. How excellent his name. And having given us the seed of the woman, we have a gospel to bring. Now I can be a pastor, you see, and go to those who have need in time of great distress. Because it's not simply a matter of words and promise. It's a matter of reality. He has been born. He has risen from the dead. He has healing in his wings. And where he is, there is a place of glory that outshines the sun. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word, the revelation of thyself. First of all, through Seth to Mother Eve, to revive hope again, but especially to the one he represented, thy son, our Savior, the seed of the woman, the dragon slayer. We pray, Father, we put our trust and confidence in him and in thee, and always in this life have hope and confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.